Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. My name's Charlie Andrews, a GP and a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology based near Bath. This podcast series is an educational resource designed to support your learning and understanding of gastroenterology topics that you're likely to come across regularly in primary care. With up to 20% of the population suffering from irritable bowel syndrome, it's really important that primary care clinicians have an understanding of how best to manage patients following a diagnosis in the community. In this episode, I'm going to be delving into dietary management of IBS with Marianne Williams, who's an extremely experienced dietitian based in Somerset. Marianne has worked as a dietitian within the NHS for a number of years and in 2011 she set up the first UK dietetic-led gastroenterology clinic for adults with IBS and allergy in Somerset. As part of this role she developed patient webinars, a fantastically useful resource for GPs to be aware of um, which provides reliable accurate and up-to-date advice for patients for dietary management of IBS as well as a range of other conditions. So we're going to be talking quite a lot and referring to patient webinars quite a lot because it is such a useful resource that anyone can access. It is an NHS-wide resource and I'll make sure that there is a link to this within the uh, information for this podcast. As a result of Marianne's pioneering work in this area, she was awarded the NHS England Allied Health Professional of the Year in 2018. Marianne lectures regularly within the UK and abroad and has sat on a number of advisory boards and is a member of the dietetic team who revised the UK IBS guidelines for the British Dietetic Association. So Marianne, thanks so much for joining me today. It's it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for asking me, Charlie. Very honoured to be here. Well, it's, it's great to have you. We've worked together on various other podcasts together and, um, and, and I've always really enjoyed, you know, sharing ideas with you. And today we're going to be digging into IBS dietary management. Yep, absolutely. Right up my street. <laughs> absolutely. You know, you are, the, you are the, the doyen of IBS dietary management. So I'm, I'm really excited to sort of go into this more. And the way we're going to structure this episode is we're going to start off by looking at what dietary interventions we can make in IBS things that have been shown to be helpful. So we'll talk a bit about first-line dietary advice. We'll talk about the low FODMAPs diet. We'll talk about probiotics. Then after that, we'll move on to that 10-minute consultation. What could we do as GPs or first-line clinicians to try and help that patient journey? And then we're going to finish off by talking about the fantastic service, Marianne, that you've set up in Somerset, which sounds like a brilliant idea to get patients engaged and understanding their condition better and enable them to to manage their condition longer term. So I'm really looking forward to hearing all about that. So should we start at the beginning? Should we look at the dietary interventions that we can put in place once we've diagnosed someone with IBS? We know how important diet is in the management of IBS. What sort of first line initial kind of general dietary advice can we give to patients who've just been diagnosed with IBS? I think before anybody looks at trying to use complex dietary intervention, it's, as you said, really important, Charlie, to look at the first line advice for IBS, because it may not actually be necessary to use 
any complex diets. I mean, the diet that's used most commonly for IBS is the low FODMAP diet. Now that needs quite a lot of motivation to do it and it just might not be necessary. So it should never be the first line approach. So if you get a patient who's sent you with IBS as a diagnosis or you diagnose them with IBS, I would definitely not direct them straight to the low FODMAP diet because it could be really simple things that need changing. So, you know, are they having a lot of junk food? Do they drink a lot of fizzy drinks? Are they eating a lot of spicy food? Have they got a lot of stress in their in their world? And are they, you know, simple things like sitting down and eating without a digital appliance at the table. So you're actually sitting, relaxing, enjoying your food, digesting. It sounds really old school advice, doesn't it? But it does make a difference. Being present in the moment while you're eating, simple things like that can make a huge difference. I might look at things like lactose as a first line. Because sometimes we find that simple things like lactose intolerance are relevant for some patients because lactose intolerance is nothing to do with allergy. And that's a big area of confusion. Um, people think that they've got a dairy allergy because they're lactose intolerant, vice versa. The two things are completely different. Lactose intolerance involves the sugar in milk. Um, allergy involves the protein in the milk, the casein and whey, nothing to do with lactose. But sometimes we have people who've got lactose intolerance. So they've got a problem with this sugar in milk. It's coming down into the gut. It hasn't got enough of the enzyme that's normally there to break it down. And it means shooting through and giving you diarrhea. Uh, and it can give you bloating and wind and all, the, all those symptoms that people get with IBS, they can also get with lactose intolerance. So I would say as first line, I would always tick that one off and go, mm, has this patient got lactose intolerance? And ask a few questions. And normally the answer is no but it's a good one to just tick off in those early days. So I think it's it's very important that they look at the basic background to that patient. At that point, if the patient goes away and looks at all the first line approaches, and there's, there's actually a very good webinar on the patient webinars um, website, which is an NHS website, patientwebinars.co.uk. It's available to anybody, it's completely free to use. And on there, we have a first line advice IBS webinar and lots of handouts in the further information handouts for people. And that may be all they need. Um, if you get a patient who comes back to you and says, look, I've still got problems, that might be when you start to look at a more definite dietary intervention. Initial dietary advice is making sure that they are, you know, avoiding the obvious things, so fizzy drinks, spicy foods, and actually being a bit more mindful around eating and making sure they're having regular meals at regular times. So these are very simple things that we can get in place. Plus, we've got the webinar that we could direct them to just so that they can understand that a bit more. Do you think that food diaries can help in this situation? I do think actually they can because I I always use food diaries with patients. So I'll, I'll always ask a patient to keep a four day food diary or to write me a summary of their general food intake over a couple of days. And it's amazing how often patients come back and go, blimey, I didn't realise I ate so badly or I didn't realise I was so erratic with my eating. Because I think you're so busy living life, aren't you? And, you know, if you're running around after kids or you're running around with a busy job or whatever it is you're doing, you don't realise actually you've slipped into bad habits. And it's not until you are forced to write it down that you can stand back and look at it and go, mm, maybe I could improve on that. Um, so, yes, I, I think I think it's actually a really useful um, personal engagement process to write it down. So it's not the practitioners and myself telling them what they're doing wrong. It's them actually having the first opportunity to go, 
oh, actually, I'm engaging in my own health and what's going on here. And I can see that actually there may be changes that need to be made. So if we've looked at that sort of initial general dietary advice and the patient is potentially not, it's not settling down, where would one go next? What would be the next things, the more sort of, I guess, as you mentioned, the more sort of specialist dietary advice that we're looking at? So the FODMAP diet was... um, invented is the wrong word it was discovered it was put together it was researched in Monash uh, University in Melbourne which is a medical school there uh, and some of the consultants from Guys and St Thomas's went over and spent some time there and brought the one of the dietitians back with them to the UK Heidi Staudacker and they started to uh, use the diet in the UK so that was back in sort of 2010 time and it's really the FODMAP diet stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. It sounds like a very long string of, you know, annoyingly long words. Basically, to cut to the chase, it's foods that ferment in the gut or cause water to be dragged into the bowel. Simple as that. So it's osmotic changes in the small intestine. So things like prunes prunes get used for people with constipation don't they they get given prunes to eat in their breakfast or prune juice etc now the reason those are good for constipation is if you've got a hard hard little stool and you take prunes and those go down to the small intestine because it's a FODMAP they drag water into the bowel and mix with the hard stools and make the stool soft Bob's your uncle you haven't got so much constipation anymore so that's a FODMAP approach but the other thing is Baked beans, everybody eats baked beans, farts, beans means farts. That's because they get down to the lower intestine, the large intestine, where they ferment. The bacteria in the large intestine ferment the residue of the baked beans, and so you get wind. Now, there are lots of fruit and veg and wheat, etc., that cause that exact same fermentation that baked beans cause. So there are some foods that cause the water to be dragged in, and there are a lot of foods that cause the wind. And if you get the wind, you're going to get the bloating. If you get the bloating, you're going to get that visceral hypersensitivity. Uh, you're going to get abdominal pain or discomfort. So there you've got your IBS symptoms. So it's what I call plumbing. Um, it's really your body plumbing. So the FODMAP diet is dealing with the plumbing issues. Nothing to do with the immune system or allergy or, you know, nothing complex. Literally just plumbing. People think of prunes and baked beans. That's the FODMAP diet, really. So what you're doing with the FODMAP diet with patients is you are removing all of those foods that have that effect for eight weeks so that you can reduce the symptoms and see where you're at. Now, I always describe it to the patient as a bit like having a jug. You've got this jug and what's happening is you're adding to this jug all the time with the FODMAP food you're eating. And then you might eat just too many and the jug overflows, and that's when you get your symptoms. Because the classic thing I get a lot of patients saying to me is, I had this food last week, and I was absolutely fine. And I had it this week, and I had the most dreadful symptoms. And I say, yeah, because that time you had the dreadful symptoms, you'd probably had a lot of FODMAPs, your jug was very full, and that same piece of food was the bit of food that pushed the jug over the top. So That's another reason why people find it so confusing, because they're looking for the same symptoms every single time they have it. And of course, that's not going to happen with something which is all about how much can I get away with? Not the tiniest bit like an allergy is going to cause problem. This is how much can I get away with before I'll get symptoms? So that's how I describe it to patients. And I think it's uh, yeah, it's it's just about reducing everything down in that jug, getting the jug empty, 
looking at where you're at and then starting to put the foods back in one by one to see which foods are particularly problematic and whether actually it's only when you just overload the whole lot that the problem occurs. That's such a great way of looking at it. I hadn't really considered it that way, but that sounds like a lovely way to try and explain it to patients um, and to get them away from that, you know, I feel like it generates a lot of anxiety, doesn't it? You're absolutely right. It sort of generates this anxiety. I've had this before, but now it's causing a problem. I don't understand what's going on. But actually, your description really helps to kind of explain that. And it's phenomenal, isn't it, that the evidence suggests that it's such an effective way of managing IBS. So you say that you remove all of these FODMAPs and then you reintroduce them. So how long a time period is this for patients? So over what sort of time do we do this? So, and this is another thing that's really important to get the message across, actually, is the diet is only for eight weeks. It's not for like, so the amount of times I've got a patient who's come to me and he said, oh, I've been doing it for two years. I'm like, why? And they said, well, I was just told to go and do it. Nobody ever followed me up. Nobody ever said I did it for so long. I just, I just carried on doing it. Now, we know from the research that the bifidobacteria get negatively affected by the FODMAP diet. So we really, really don't want people on it for too long. The bacteria issue and the detrimental effects of the FODMAP diet is still very much under review. But at the moment, we really, really don't want people doing the diet for a long time because we don't really fully understand yet what's happening to the gut bacteria. So it's very important. That's the first thing I'd say that they do it for eight weeks. So if you're going to suggest that somebody does the diet, you Ideally, you need to be referring to either the, the patient webinars, which tells them all about the eight weeks, or to a dietitian who can review them, unless you feel happy to review them yourselves and make sure they come off the diet. Um, and then at that point, you're introducing the foods one by one. You stay on the FODMAP diet, because if you tried apples, which is a FODMAP, and you were fine after three days of apples and you kept apples in and then you put onions in, which is another FODMAP. Now your jug's starting to get fuller, isn't it? Now you've got apples and onions. If you react to the onions, you won't know whether it's because you've got apples and onions or whether it was just the onions. So we always say you do your apples, take them out, do your onions, take them out, do the next. So you stay on the FODMAP diet throughout just doing one of these foods at a time, but making notes of what happened. And then at the end, you can go, OK, I can see I can get away with this much of this, this much of this. And you start to return back to normal eating. So about six to 10 weeks for the reintroduction process. So eight weeks of the diet, six to 10 weeks of the reintroduction process. And at which point you've reached your personal level of adapted FODMAP diet. So perfectly safe to be on an adapted FODMAP diet. What's not safe or we don't know is safe is to be on the strict diet long term. Okay. Yeah. So you yeah. may have got you may have got the idea that actually I need to keep wheat to sort of minimum. I can still have it and onions. I can't go too loopy, but otherwise most things are fine. And so therefore you're tr trucking along pretty much back to normal eating, but just with the, the knowledge of, of the things that you need to just be careful of. It feels like it probably takes quite a lot of um, patient engagement and knowledge understanding, which I guess is where things like patient webinars come in and where dietitians can help to kind of educate and train yeah. patients. Is that? Yeah. Motivation yeah. is hugely important. Motivation. So you, you would not use this first line advice mm -hmm. again because you need motivation. If somebody's not really motivated to do this, then they're going to do it sort of yeah, half effectively, aren't mm. they? And And then they're going to get unsatisfactory results and then it's going to look like the FODMAP diet doesn't work and it was actually because they didn't do the diet properly.
this might be a little bit too simplistic. I don't know if you can even do it, but what are the sort of five big hitters in FODMAPs? Are you able to tell me kind of the five big foods that we know are just big hitters for FODMAP? Every single person's different, Charlie. You knew I was going to say that. Every single person's different. It's individual for each person. But what I would say I hear a lot is garlic, onions, and bread or wheat. Those are the three ones I'd say. Mm -hmm. Sprouts, cauliflower, pretty obvious. Everybody farts mm -hmm. after sprouts and cauliflower, so that's pretty obvious. Um, but garlic and onions are, are, are a real uh, problem for a, a lot of people because we use it so much in cooking. Wheat also is a big issue because in the UK diet, you try going out for lunch and not having wheat. As most celiacs would tell you who can't have wheat, how difficult it can be to find something at lunchtime that doesn't have wheat in. Um, so wheat is wheat is not so much a massive problem. It's just so prevalent in our diet. So it makes up a very large proportion of diet. You, know, you start the day with Weetabix, you have a sandwich at lunchtime, you have pasta for dinner. You know, your whole diet's reliant on wheat. So, um, But garlic and onions also, people use those as a base. So you might have people who've got really good um healthy diets they've got their own allotment they're growing their own veg they're doing everything right they're eating a fantastic diet um and then you tell them they've got to take garlic and onions out and they're absolutely distraught because that's the base of all their food and meals that they make um but there are lots of alternatives that they can use and that's what the dietitian's job is to do you know they can use the green part of spring onions they can use chives they can use asphodita powder there's all sorts of things they can do to compensate but it's about giving them those tools so i think the the big problem when people try and do the fodmap diet on their own is they're not given those tools they don't know what to do where to go and they give up or they mm. do it ridiculously strictly and, and end up taking out far too many things that they didn't need to the biggest problem we have is people taking out all dairy because they've heard that lactose and they got mixed up and they end up taking all dairy out, which is totally unnecessary. You shouldn't do that on a FODMAP diet. So, and I guess there's risks with that as well, aren't there? Yeah, nutritional risks, definitely. Yeah. So nutritional compromised patients are very common when they've been told to go and do it without guidance. Mm. You talked a little bit about um, the microbiome. So you alluded to bifidobacteria, um, which brings me quite nicely on to ask a bit about probiotics and what your take on probiotics is in IBS. So the national guidelines would say, for instance, that you might try one for, for two or three months and see how uh, it helps. You know, there are hundreds of different bacteria in the gut and some of mine might be identical to you, but a lot of ours are going to be uh, individual to us. You know, our vaginal deliveries, what we were exposed to when we were babies, etc. So we've got our own fingerprint. Now, the probiotics that are available, uh, you know, to buy may not be the probiotics you need. You know, so we and that may explain why some people go, wow, Eureka, this has been revolutionary for me. And other people go, well, this has made absolutely no difference at all. Uh, we don't really know. The, the jury's still very much out on probiotics and how useful they are. But I and also they're expensive. So for most of my patients, I would say, let's do the diet first and uh, let's look at pro probiotics later. Yeah, I think sort of looking at the BSG guidelines, I think that, that, mm. that they, you know, they concur exactly with what you've been saying is that it's, there just isn't quite the evidence at the mm. moment to kind of say what sort of species is going to be beneficial. I think their advice, and actually, I think, I think this sort of echoes a little bit, the nice guidance is, is sort of a 12 week trial would be the upper mm. limit of what you do. But if you're not seeing any benefit, then it's probably not worth continuing. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'd say. And mm. actually, you know, I really, I would really say, 
hold off on them until you've done all the dietary interventions yeah. and then perhaps try it. Um, okay. So I, I that that would be my personal approach um, to and a lot of that is based on the fact that a we don't know whether the the species are the right ones and b they're expensive. Yeah, yeah, no, they are. So moving on to the ten minute consultation. I mean, every GP and primary care, you know, has different length of appointments. But just thinking about what we can do in that sort of that that shorter point with the patient, try and maximise things. From from talking to you today, I feel like the initial general dietary advice I think I could I could tackle that with them we could go through some of that um, obviously the FODMAP side of things it's going to be more difficult so I feel like in that 10 minute consultation and and feel free to tell me what you think you'd put into that but I feel like signposting is probably going to be an important part of what we do um, alongside maybe that sort of basic um, first line dietary advice what yeah. are your thoughts around yeah, what we can I 100%, 100% agree with that, Charlie. I think, you know, it's imp- you, there's no point even trying to go down the FODMAP route in 10 minutes. It takes, we have an hour per consultation and I've seen thousands of patients now over many, many years and I still can't get it down under an hour. So, you know, because if you're going to do it properly, if you're going to look at the whole background, the case history, check it's the right thing, then go through the FODMAP diet, make sure they've got all the info, blah, blah, you know, you're talking an hour. So there's no way it's not fair on GPs to ask them to even attempt that. Uh, and that's what the patient webinars um, uh, website was set up for, was specifically so GPs could go, actually, I think you need to go and look at this. Um, so first line, I agree. So the first line, just doing the, the the rough sort of looking, are they eating healthily? Is there anything obvious that they might be doing? But even that's quite a tall order in 10 minutes, to be honest, if you're going to really get, because often they won't, they're not going to, they're not going to release all that information to you in 10 minutes. Uh, you know, the fact they might be very stressed or that, you know, how are you going to work out whether they've got digital appliances at dinner times and their dinner times are chaotic, etc. So I would also say you might do the, the have a look at what you can in that amount of time, but also send them to patient webinars to do the first line IBS. Um, you say, look, patient webinars, first line IBS webinar first, if that doesn't work, do the FODMAP diet webinar. And if that doesn't work, you've got a self-referral form in Somerset that you can refer into the service. You don't need to see me for that. You don't need a GP referral. You can just refer straight from the webinar system. You can download the sheet and refer it in Somerset, that is. So I think that's all been set up specially to help GPs because they're so overloaded with work at the moment that if there is a condition like this, that you can say, right, there you go. Go and look at that. That's going to help them a lot. And the idea was that GPs didn't need to write referral letters or do anything that was going to take them time, but that the inf- they could feel confident that the information they were getting from the website was accurate and up to date. Yeah, I, I love your service and I want to talk more about that um, to, to try and sort of dig into that more. Um, so so we've obviously got we've got patient webinars absolutely love it I use it all the time I think it's brilliant can you offer sort of advise any other resources that we can use so are there any apps that are quite helpful for people to use Um, any websites that are good any other areas that we could signpost patients to that offers sort of reliable useful advice for them well, one of the links we use is the Monash. Um, they've got Monash FODMAP Grand Tour. So if you put into YouTube, Monash FODMAP Grand Tour, it'll come up with this fantastic uh, video. Really, it's sort of short. I think it's a couple of minutes long. It's not very long, but it's brilliant graphics explaining exactly the physiology behind what is happening in a really 
uh, accessible format. So, you know, for a patient to listen to that, I often show that to patients during the consultation. I have it, a link to it on my computer and I'll go, actually, I'm just going to show you this video because I think, and actually that's something the GP could do actually, if they felt, you know, because that video is, you know, very easy. So this is why, this is what I think might be relevant to you. Again, you might not have time, 10 minute consultation, but I would say that video is incredibly uh, useful because it really explains a lot of patients go, oh yeah, that's exactly what happens to me. Oh, now I get it. It also gives you the opportunity to say, this is a plumbing issue not an allergy, because this is the biggest problem we have. When we were doing research, our tester question to check that they'd uh, listened, assimilated and understood the webinar. So we'd get them to fill in a questionnaire before and a questionnaire after they'd watched the webinar. Our, our test question was, do you think allergy is relevant to IBS? Before the webinar, they'd all say yes. After the webinar, they'd all say no. And you knew that therefore they'd listened to the webinar and understood it and realised allergy wasn't relevant. So it's a massively um, a massive problem of, of poor understanding there. So I think that that video is brilliant because it gives you an opportunity to go, you see, this is just plumbing. It's nothing to do with allergy. So yeah, I'd say that is probably the number one useful extra bit that I would give them. On the, um, sorry to keep going back to patient webinars. It's just, it's like, it's like I'm doing some sort of sales technique, but it's an NHS website. Um, but we have a further information handout section on that. Um, under the IBS section. And there are lots and lots of links on there to other useful, um, all sorts of stuff, including psychological stuff as well as uh, dietary stuff. So really useful resource page. Um, and that's where I would send everybody. It just keeps it simple and easy. They've got one place to go and they've got all the resources and links they need, plus the webinars. Brilliant. And just out of interest you know are there any apps that can help people with the FODMAP diet or would it you know that's not somewhere we generally would go to? Well, the really tragic thing is King's College London had an app, um, which was brilliant. And unfortunately, the app company got bought out uh, by an American um, conglomerate. So it got um, closed down. I, I don't know where they're at or whether they are going to reproduce it. I'm not sure. Um, but the one that we tend to use if we have to is the Monash uh, University app. Um, I can't remember how much it costs. There is a there is a charge. The only problem with that is it's a lot of Australian based foods and some of the foods are slightly different uh, in there. You know, so we might have some foods in England that we'd say are OK. And, and on their app, it wouldn't be in Australia because the different varieties of foods you get. So it can cause a bit of confusion. Um, I tend to say that the app is a useful fallback, but if you've got all the information you need from a dietitian you don't really need the app so I will actually discourage patients from using the app because actually the the FODMAP diet we have red and yellow sections that are foods to red definitely high FODMAP yellow is you know high enough to be concerned about green is absolutely safe to go really nice color coding in the King's College London booklets that are brilliant so that patients know exactly what they can have stick to the green they'll be fine yellow they're supposed to be able to have a bit but a lot of times with my patients I I'll say actually could you cut the yellow out because I'm seeing them and I'm making it a personal uh, approach for them because they then use the app which allows them to have the yellow so they end up getting confused so 
I discourage the use of the app when I see patients one-to-one, but if they're doing the FODMAP diet on their own or using just the webinar, then the the the, uh, the Monash University app is probably the only one I would recommend uh, and sort of crossing fingers and toes that King's College might uh, bring one back again. Brilliant, thanks. So a lot of signposting. There sounds like there's loads of really good resources out there. Um, and the service that you've set up in Somerset is really, really interesting. You've you've set up and developed patient webinars um, and you've also developed this sort of IBS service, which sounds fantastic and, and streamlines the pathway for the patient, makes um, makes it so they don't need a referral from the GP. It all sounds brilliant. Can you just elaborate on on that pathway because I think it'd be interesting for others to hear about what's going on in Somerset but I think it's it's important to emphasize that this is for Somerset patients uh, only but I believe that there might be other areas that potentially are doing something similar but do you want to just uh, talk yeah. about what you're doing because it sounds really interesting. So what we set up is a dietetic led gastroenterology service basically so for IBS patients and gastro allergy patients to be referred to and it got set up in and commissioned in 2012 um, and it was commissioned based on the success we were already having with our community-based patients with the low FODMAP diet. And suddenly the, the consultants thought, actually, this would be a great route as, uh, for GPs to have. So we set this up and um, the GPs would refer directly into the service. Uh, and then we got to a point where we were just overwhelmed with patients. I mean, you know, 10% of the population uh, have IBS, probably more. So it's it, it just couldn't cope with the numbers. So we thought, well, what should we do group sessions? Now we did group sessions for about 18 months, absolute disaster, because um, no matter how we cajoled them and said, you won't need to talk about your bowels, you won't, you know, this is a female dominated con condition. They don't want to come and talk in front of other people about IBS. And we'd say, no, you're not going to have to talk about it. Don't probably just come and let, no, they just wouldn't come. They'd always come to their one-to-one -one se sessions. They just did not come to groups. So in the end, we thought, scratching our heads thinking, what, what can we do? YouTube were becoming very aware of, and we were involved in an NHS England 100-day uh, project. And I sort of was on the gastro team for that and said, well, look, let's create a YouTube video and see what happens. And so we set it up as a webinar, in fact, and we did webinars on IBS uh, every sort of third Monday of the month. And we did that for about, I don't know, eight months, I think it was. And the patients all came to that. They loved that. So they would get referred to us. We would then send them out the information about the webinar and they would log on and come and watch it, at which point they could ask questions during the webinar. But they felt anonymous. That was the important thing. They're sitting at home in the comfort of their own home and they felt anonymous so they didn't feel looked at with their IBS symptoms so they loved that they loved that and then we realized actually hang on a minute we're just repeating the same stuff over and over again at each of these Mondays why don't we record one of these sessions and put it up on a website that patients can then access when they want they don't have to turn up at seven o'clock on a Monday you know if they've got other commitments um, so we that's what we did and that's where patient webinars was born so we put the first line IBS webinar up there suddenly we were literally flooded with people wanting to watch it because it meant they didn't need to go for an appointment they didn't need to travel they didn't need to go they could just quietly watch this webinar see if it helped and they seemed to love it so we got really good we were doing research on it the whole time collecting data and then it, it grew from there we thought right well let's do one on the FODMAP diet etc uh, and so the service really it, it got set up 
by dietitians who were who were running the service to look at how we could deal with the IBS patients in our area and set up a pathway that would work for them, which then included the webinars. We wrote a research paper in frontline gastroenterology along with my colleague, a gastroenterologist, Emma Gregg, back in 2016 about the pathway up to that point, how we created it. So if anybody's looking at at setting up that sort of pathway, it's in it's it's published in 2016. Um, and then the webinar project was published in 2020 and is about to have a new publication done at the moment. So it's a service that was really there because we needed it. And it happened to coincide with the FODMAP diet arriving on the scene and being really successful. So it's a bit of a right place, right time. Um, and I think it's a, a really important important support service for GPs and and certainly GPs in Somerset um, have been incredibly uh, kind and, and encouraging and have said it's been incredibly useful for them. I stepped back from the service in January 22 um, and so I don't work in the service now but I'm very much still in touch with the team. So the GPs will and and I, I do this from our area and I'm not in Somerset but um you can direct patients towards patient webinars and they can work their way through these webinars and become more empowered to understand and manage their condition. Um, and then it sounds like in Somerset, they could then self-refer through to the dietitian should yeah. their symptoms not be settling or they need additional help. Is that is that the way it works? Absolutely, absolutely. So if they don't, if they're not getting better or they've been directed to the webinars and they're going, oh, actually, I don't like to watch webinars. I'm not digitally, I feel a bit uncomfortable with this. I mean, obviously, since COVID and digitalization has, you know, really exploded, that's less common now. But, you know, still you'll get people that just that just want to talk to somebody. And I get that. That's totally, they can download a self-referral form if they're with a Somerset GP. Uh, they can download it straight from the website and refer straight into our service without having to go via the GP at all. So the idea is minimise the impact on GP services. Um, and so, yes, that I mean, we actually get comparatively few self-referrals, really. Um, but, uh, yeah, very, very useful for patients to feel they've got that that fallback and for yeah. other areas so particularly during COVID a lot of other NHS trusts started using the webinars because of course their services got shut down and as far as I understand although you'd need to ask them some of them are doing the same but they're supplying the self-referral form in a slightly different way obviously not straight off our website um, so I should think it's something to do with how they contact the patient tell them to do it they probably add the self-referral form in at that point totally doable really does work a lot of people said to us oh my god you're just going to be flooded with re with referrals but as mm -hmm. I said earlier that that hasn't happened and doesn't happen because if you give the right information in a good way most people feel empowered um to to deal with their, their symptoms the other thing with the FODMAP diet is it is a treatment webinar this is a treatment where it's not just a sort of like oh uh, here's a few ideas it's actually exactly the same information that we would give the patient if we saw them into one-to-one -one service so they are getting the dietetic uh, advice for the FODMAP diet by watching that webinar I think it's an hour long roughly an hour long webinar. Marianne it sounds like a that sounds like a fantastic service it really does and I love talking to you about these sorts of things your enthusiasm is infectious and I love the way that you can communicate things to me and to patients in such an understandable way. I think that that's a real, mass, you know, it's a huge skill. And I think it's so important. And as GPs uh, or clinicians working on the front line, we need to be able to communicate things in a way that patients can understand and engage with. And I think that's exactly what you've given us today. Um, so thank you so much. 
Do you want to give us any final take home messages for our primary care clinicians who are listening? The biggest take home, I'd say, don't tell the patient to go away and look up the FODMAP diet on the Internet. Biggest take home, without question, that is the worst thing you can do. Send them to a reliable source of information. Don't alter the dietitian. If you've got a good dietetic service that that, can, that deals with IBS, send them to the dietitians. Um, because that is the one thing that we tear our hair out with is is people who've just been going, right, you've got IBS, go and look up the FODMAP diet. I've heard that's what you're supposed to do. And off the patient toddles, gets really confused and goes round and round in circles and pulling their own hair out. So I'd say that's the biggest take home. Other than that, I, I just, I don't think there's much else other than we've got the whole system set up so that GPs have got somewhere reliable to send them so they, they know that they can send them to the webinars. They know that they'll have downloadable information on there. It'll give them links to other useful information. So really, I think that's all GPs need um, with the IBS patients. I mean, I guess making sure that this is truly an IBS patient and that isn't actually a misdiagnosis for gastrointestinal allergy. So if you've got somebody who's been checked for IBD, but they're still getting, you know, 10, 15 episodes of really urgent diarrhea and having fecal accidents the whole time you know that's not classical IBS at all and it might be worth sending to the dietitian say could you just check this patient hasn't actually got a gut allergy going on but other than that I'd say no there's nothing I'd really say GPs do such an amazing job and if they just can refer them onto the right place that's fantastic. Thanks so much Marianne it's been a pleasure to 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 chat to you today thank you. Absolute pleasure thank you for asking me. So a massive thank you to Marianne for joining me for this episode. Lots and lots of food for thought there. So many useful bits of information. And I certainly come away with a better understanding of dietary management of IBS. And I hope that you have as well. And thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate that your time is really precious. And so when you spend it listening to this podcast, I'm extremely grateful to you for that. In the next episode of Ingest, I'm going to be talking about faecal calprotectin, that fantastically useful test that we can use to differentiate between irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease. We talk about how to use it most appropriately and how to interpret it. So please join me for that. If you're enjoying the series, please do click subscribe so that you get a notification when a new episode is brought out, which we're aiming to do every month. I also really enjoy hearing from you. So if you have any feedback, then please don't hesitate to uh, to get in touch with us. Also, if you have any thoughts around the podcast and would like to share them, then please do so by writing a review underneath this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope to be able to educate, inspire and talk to you again next month. <laughs>